The final edition Radio Hour is a work of satire intended for people who own books, gentrify neighborhoods, and say they like kale. Please consume responsibly the satire, that is. Hi, I'm Jeff Chrysler. And I'm Tony Hendra, and this is the final edition Radio Hour. Ugh, what a lame week. Lame? What are you talking about? We had Tax Day? Yawn. Earth Day? <sighs> Harriet Tubman escaped onto the $20 bill? Whatever. Prince transitioned from this life into the next? Yep. Passover started? Pointless. Trump and Clinton won the New York primary? Oh, geez, hooray! Who knows which corrupt puppet will continue our march towards irrelevancy? What is wrong with you, Jeffers? This was actually a big week to think about the world and our place in it, about music, politics, art, humanity. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It was also Hitler's birthday. Oh, oh fuck this week. This, this is the final, final edition Radio Hour. Man on the Street! Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu said Harriet Tubman will replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. The final edition asked the man on the street... What do you think? Just in time for us to stop using cash. They're replacing Andy Jackson? Then the engines have won! It's a, it's a trade-off. It's a woman, but it's a tub man. They're going to spell her last name T-U-B-M-Y-N. You know, they had to uh, pry Will- William Howard Taft out of a tub bin. I still think the most important black woman in history was Mary Wells, singer of My Guy. I'm sorry, I'm still writing John Quincy Adams on my check. She's actually the second woman on a dollar, just the first one on a paper dollar. That's right, because yeah. Sacagawea was on yeah. the gold one. She's the third name, because Susan B. Anthony was on it. In a silver dollar. Now you can just pay with like a, a paper dollar as opposed to pirate girl cash. Up until this point, women have only been used on doubloons. I can't wait for the Hattie McDaniel nickel. You know what? I'm sorry. Harriet Tubman, they couldn't pick one of the other famous black women from the 19th century. I can't believe I'm going to have to start pulling Harriet Tubman out of my G string. <laughs> My bladder's going to... Uh, hold it right there, ma'am. I need to take a look at your birth certificate before you enter that lady's restroom. Sorry, officer. Did you say birth certificate? Ah, you're not from the great state of North Carolina, are you? No, I'm driving down the East Coast and I really need to go. Well, here in the Tar Heel State, the restroom you use must match the gender on your birth certificate. Okay, well, obviously I'm not carrying around my birth certificate. Then that's going to be a problem because I need to enforce HB2, a.k.a. the bathroom law. The law that prevents transgendered people from using restrooms that correspond with their identity? No. The law that prevents sexual predators from pretending to be transgendered in order to watch our women and little girls take number ones and number twos. Okay, this is ridiculous. I'm obviously not a man. Yeah, I don't write the laws, ma'am. I just enforce them. Now, go ahead and lift up your skirt for me. Excuse me? I'm just trying to keep you safe from lewd behavior. Now show me what's under your hood. Okay, are you serious? Help me to shield you from trauma by flashing me your genitals. No, no, I am reporting you, sir. You just call me a sir? Yes. Ma'am, while I do identify as a male, I was actually born a female. Really? Do you want me to show you? God, no, no. So, wait, do you use the men's restroom? Absolutely not, ma'am. 
I use a female restroom because that's the gender on my birth certificate. Okay, no offense, but like, doesn't that freak women out? Yeah, none taken. And yes, all the time. That's why I only go when nobody else is inside. Otherwise, I urinate in a state-issued pee bottle. A state-issued pee bottle? Every transgendered police officer in North Carolina has a state-issued pee bottle and a road potty. Jesus. It actually adds a lot of time back to my day, going while I drive. Okay, look, officer, I'm really dying here. Is there any other way I can use this restroom without showing you my genitals? Nope. But I do have a spare pee bottle if you want one. Fine, just ugh, give me the damn pee bottle. There you go. Drive safe, you hear? God damn, I love this state. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to ride. If you're looking for a really business-friendly market for your company, come to Sheffield, Alabama. In Alabama, you're already a winner. The state won't let any city raise minimum wage above $7.25, but at Sheffield, that's not all. Our lawmakers believe in upholding the minimum wage law as it was first passed. And when it was first passed, in 1938, it was $0.25 cents an hour. That was the intent of the founding fathers, or whoever the hell was in charge in 1938. So $0.25 cents an hour is the minimum wage in Sheffield. And yes, children can work here. In coal mining, air conditioning repair... Storage tank cleaning, getting small objects out of garbage disposals, or any other job requiring tiny bodies to fit into tiny spaces. Not business friendly enough for you? Well, how many other small towns would give you a sex slave? And not imported either. We'll kidnap one of our own people. Because we want your business. We are business friendly. We are not kidding around. Maybe that's why so many businesses have come to Sheffield already. Ask about our centrally located methamphetamine labs. We don't hide them out in the desert. We put them right in the kiosk at the mall. Or our booming snuff film industry. Young actresses come from all over the world for the role of a lifetime. Plus, cannibalism is legal. Just flat out fucking legal. So you can kill someone and eat them on film without some government busybody second guessing you, the creative entrepreneur. So come to Sheffield. We won't be giving you the business for giving us your business. You can kill any people on film. Ted Cruz. Oh, hey, God. We need to talk about dildos. Banning them? Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, I mean, Bob's. And you'll be getting extra credit for that, don't you worry. It's just... There are other things, Ted, that my people on Earth aren't obeying, and I think you should go ahead and tackle those things first, you know, since I was so specific, before you come up with new stuff. Right. No problem, God. I am on it. The gays, the fornicators, the gun haters. Damn straight. I'll tell you this for nothing. If Jesus had had a new Nighthawk custom back in 80-0, things would have gone down differently at Calvary. Word. Okay, back to my obey list. First, there's the whole mixing two kinds of cloth in one garment thing. Oh, yeah? What do you mean, oh, yeah? Well, honestly, I thought that not mixing two kinds of cloth was one of the old-fashioned ones you've probably changed your mind about by now. Uh, no. I mean, seriously? It's like you don't know me at all. 
The omnipotent, all-knowing, timeless, ageless god does not change his mind about things by now. I guess I didn't realize it meant so much to you. Yeah, well it does. And honestly, Ted, I do not think I could have made myself any clearer about that. I said it twice. Once in Deuteronomy and once in Leviticus. Twice! Which is the same number of times I specifically mentioned being pissed about homosexuals. Twice. And yet, even you, Ted, you're wearing a cotton rayon mixed shirt today. Et tu, Ted. Et tu. Oh god, I am sorry. Dude! Twice! And don't even get me started on haircuts with round edges. Seriously? I'm God, Ted! I'm pretty much always serious! Thou shalt not round off the side growth of your head, nor harm the edges of your beard. Leviticus 19. I sort of thought that m that was maybe an optional one. That's what John Lennon thought, and look what happened to him. Save yourself from eternal hellfire, Ted. Being a good person counts for bugger all. If you don't leave the fine print on acceptable hairstyles. Wow. Okay. Good to know. So, obviously, shellfish is a no. Made my thoughts on that pretty clear. Masturbation, big no. Just as bad as wearing gold or women braiding their hair or any kind of tattoo. Including if it's some kind of Mary or Jesus or a crucifix. Not getting around it that easily. Divorce. Touching any kind of pig. They're all a given. So when I make you President Ted, you better get on it. I absolutely will, God. Good. But seriously, Ted? Yes, God? Nice work on the dodo thing. Thanks, God. <laughs> Dildo. Man on the Street! To commemorate the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, the final edition goes back in time 110 years and asks the man on the street, what do you think? The most important question, though, is, did the Girardelli's factory survive? The most tragic part was when the FAO building fell into the Schwartz building. Fortunately, I stood in a doorway. And that's how John Muir survived to found all of the national parks. Finally, <laughs> crouching under my desk pays off. It's a good thing this coincided on the day we're going to blow up Chinatown. This is going to set back production on streets of San Francisco by at least 70 years. I picked a bad day to give up opium. I know everything's burning here, but I'm still not going to Oakland. I'm sorry, I'm from Berkeley. I'm not aware anything happened. I mean, I know we're charging $13 for a cup of coffee on Fisherman's Wharf because it's scares with the earthquake i think we should never stop doing this though is anybody going to the uh, cinema tonight to see the sneeze life's too short i'm gonna grow white person dreads well my memory doesn't serve me too well lately but the last thing i remember was hearing two guys yell allah akbar And welcome to So Wrong, the game show where all the correct answers are... So Wrong! Right you are. Let's meet our contestants. Jimbo here is a sheriff's deputy from Little Rock, Arkansas. Racist. What? I'm not racist. It's not right to assume that. No, it's not right. It's... So, so Wrong! wrong. Hello? Next, we have Ted, a realtor from Houston, Texas. Hello, Ted. Hi there. I just really look forward to playing the game. Wow, you seem like a real homo. 
Huh? I, uh, you, you, you know what? You can't. Oh, oh, I got you. That's so wrong. <laughs> Excellent. And Brittany is a homemaker from Long Island. Brittany, it says here you like to suck cock. Excuse me? No, I don't. Great, frigid bitch. Let's look at the categories. We've got things black people do, those fucking immigrants, precious gems, our amazing universe, and starts with N. Jimbo, you start us off. I'll take things black people do. Surprise, surprise. Here's your clue. This is where black people talk the entire time. Oh, I know, the movie theater. Congratulations, Jimbo. That is... So wrong! We could have also accepted any fucking place. Pick another category, Jimbo. I think I'll play it safe and go with Precious Gems. Okay. This is the gemstone for people born in January. Brittany! That's when I was born. Uh, it's the garnet. Oh, I'm sorry. We were looking for Mexicans are rapists. Better luck next time. Jimbo, the board still belongs to you. I'll go with Our Amazing Universe, please. Okay. This is the planet that a gay guy would most like to visit. Ted? What the... I did buzz in. Oh, don't be coy, you people. Once again, this is the planet that a gay guy would most like to visit. No, I won't do it. Come on, Ted, just say it. For the score. God, Uranus, okay? Gay people want to go to Uranus. Excellent. Whoa, we're out of time. Once again, we didn't get to that starts with N category. Maybe next time. Join us then on... Yes, of Sir Wong's stay at a hotel with a desk clerk from India, Mexican maids, and black people working in the kitchen. Because that's every hotel everywhere. Do you ever, like, go for a walk on a beautiful spring day like this one, when the birds are singing in the clear blue sky, and the blossoms adorn the trees in a beautiful blush veil? You're sipping your first iced coffee of the year. And then suddenly, you get, like, a sense of the massive, awesome beauty of creation and your place in it as part of God's great plan and pattern of the universe. Do you ever, like, get that? No. Oh, yeah, me neither. Mostly I just want to Instagram things. Cool, yes, totally, me too. Yeah. Cruz, you've been at the center of an internet storm over a case you argued before the U.S. Court of Appeals in Texas, in which you claimed that the government has an interest in discouraging autonomous sex, or whacking off. Do you still believe that, Senator? I am proud to say that I do. You also wrote that there is no constitutional right to stimulate one's genitals for purposes unrelated to procreation. In other words, no one has the right to slam their ham, beat their meat, or flog their bishop. Do you still believe that? I do, except for the bishop one. I believe stimulating your genitals, if it's not for making babies, is tantamount to hiring a prostitute or committing bigamy. Yes. 
And yet your college roommate, Craig Mazin, tweeted that at school you frequently punched the munchkin, waxed the dolphin, and roughed up the suspect. So? Are you admitting that there have been times when you dated Rosie Palmer and her five little sisters? Let me be clear. When I said in court that there is no right protected by law to stimulate your genitals, etc., etc., that applies to you and other harlots like you, who probably spend most of your time paddling the pink canoe. Oh, yeah, baby. Me and my bird finger love to part the Red Sea. I call it my menage a moi. But it doesn't apply to me. Really? No. Why is that? Because I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. So long as Jesus Christ dwells in my heart, I can do no wrong. So it's okay to choke Charlie till he throws up, so long as you're thinking about Jesus. Yes, my Jesus. And while you're strangling the one-eyed trouser snake, what image of Jesus do you see? Christ is on the cross. So naked, Jesus. No, 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 no. He has, he has on a loincloth. Around his loins. Yes. Oh, uh, oh, uh, uh, his girded loins. Which also girds his strong young buttocks. His strong young buttocks. Straining in pain against the wood, the blessed wood, the hard, long wood of the cross. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Oh, yes. Okay, and the wise men. Oh, 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 incense and myrrh, incense and myrrh, incense and myrrh. Oh, yes. Why, Senator, you've been shaking hands with Mr. Happy on national television. Yes. Uh, I am in a consensual same-sex relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus, Son of God and Mary. There's nothing wrong with that, because my heart is pure. Woo! Amen to that, Teddy baby. You're as pure as they come. Thanks, Jesus. Jesus said Ted Cruz for president. This is God, and I approve this message. And now, in honor of Earth Day, a tribute to the majesty of the humpback whale. Welcome, Santa Cruz chapter of Friends of the Humpback Whale, to another of our whale spotting voyages off the beautiful central California coast. Hi! Good to see you. Of course, we all know and love the legendary songs of the humpback whale. But you know, what are far less known and in their way just as beautiful are the farts of the humpback whale. Really? Wow. There's one of the lovely creatures now. Perhaps we'll get lucky. Unlike the humpback's songs, which can only be heard underwater, its farts are quite audible at sea level. You see, they come up to the surface to fart. Well, I suppose that's some rudimentary form of courtesy to other whales. That's a pretty thought. Oh, there she blows. Is that a spout? Like a spout. It's hot air becoming vapor ahead of the actual fart. With luck, we're about to hear one. Will we be able to smell it, too? The farts of the humpback whale do not smell. Oh, hark! That is so haunting. I know. The richness, the profound power. It's like a mighty organ of the sea. Well, it comes from an organ. 
to me, it speaks volumes. It's your releasing volumes. Greg, stop being a smartass. You're spoiling it for people. There's another spout. I always thought the spout came from its blowhole. It's just a different blowhole. The sheer majesty of it is mind-blowing. What happens if you light one of their farts? Actually, humpback whale farts are so powerful, you can light them underwater. Wow. Has anyone ever done that? Yeah. There's a group of scuba divers in Malibu dedicated to lighting humpback whale farts underwater. They call themselves the California Fast-Moving Fart Patrol. Oh, oh, look. A whole pod of whales approaching our boat. Oh, they're coming quite close. How beautiful they are. Do humpback whales communicate by farting? Yes, one will fart and another will fart back. Listen. Why are they surrounding us with their tails towards us? By turning their backs, they're showing their trust in us fellow mammals. It's a gesture of peace and friendship. Oh, man, do you smell that? That is friggin' toxic! Something died inside that whale! Hey, I told you, humpback whale farts are odorless. Yeah? Well, don't light a match. Um, I hate to say this, but I think they're farting at us. It's a whale fraternity, a gesture of fraternal flatulence. Really? I thought these majestic animals were above this kind of sophomoric humor. Oh, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Krill farts are the worst. Welcome back to the final edition. Periodically in this portion of the show, you'll hear us interview movers and shakers and big thinkers in the worlds of politics and media and comedy. Sometimes those big thinkers will interview us. That's what you're getting this week. Following is a portion of an interview with Dan Macarone. I don't know if I'm saying it right. He runs a great podcast called Story in a Bottle. That's storyinabottle.charmingrobot.com. That's where you can hear the full interview with Tony Hendra. One thing about the 80s was uh, I was kind of out of favor. I mean, the National Lampoon was definitely not any longer the uh, leading light of the comedy scene or the cutting edge or whatever. And I must say I was not into the, you know, what we call brick wall stand-up sort of Which was the the definition of a lot of comedy in the 80s, for sure. Exactly. I really thought, as I said, we'd put that and laid it in its grave. We'd never see it again. And here it was, walking upright, literally, standing up. So, but what I did do was a lot of print parodies. I did uh, a very successful parody of the Wall Street Journal, which we did two, one in 81 and one in 82, um, which didn't sort of go down in, you know, comedy history, but was a great way to sort of pull this this enormous well not enormous but this this incredibly good bunch of writers together to do you know to do something that they could focus their fear and anger on how how does that work because you know this is this might be the one part of like uh comedy that i've never quite 
wrap my head around. Like I, I, I'm a huge com- comedy nerd, and I, I'll, I'll read like you know even a lot of the a lot of comedy books, you know, like like humorous books or humor mm-hmm. books. But the idea of parody issues, I, I, it's never been something that's been other than like you know my high school newspaper or college newspaper doing parody issues of itself, which is not which is trite to talk to even talk about. I don't. I, I've just it's never been part of something that I've understood and uh, not understood, but like never been a regular part of comedy for me. So when you're creating these issues, how does that work? How does that how do, how does it get distributed? Like what what happens there? Well, I mean, with this was like not the New York Times and, right. and off the Wall Street Journal was um, was was very similar in spirit. But I mean, the the thing about a parody is that. Um, it's not really – it doesn't reference comedy. It references whatever the target is. Mm-hmm. And and in, in the case of the Wall Street Journal at that time, at, you know, in the early 80s, the Wall Street Journal was the, the most clarion uh, voice of – of uh, neoconservatism and you know supply side economics and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was there was a fairly serious purpose behind doing the Wall Street Journal in as, mm-hmm. as much as we could. And again, it was it, this was actually mo- a lot less genial than the not the New York Times. It was really like a, an ad out assault on the Wall Street Journal. And evidently enough people, you know, literally it, the two issues together sold like I don't know a million copies. Where did you distribute them? Through Hudson News. So they'd be on the stand, yeah. along with yeah. the Journal, the Times, exactly. whatever. Yeah. And just for like the, the the Wall Street Journal parodies were in every airport in America. That's incredible. Yeah. And how, did well, you have every, every wherever Hudson News had right? News and stuff. you had you had the, that distribution thanks to your relationship with the Lampoon. Or how did that no, work? We we had a br- brilliant publisher who who actually been, was the ex publisher of Rolling Stone. But um, I mean, I don't know whether you whether you're asking a question about the way it, way it's done or whether the nature of what was done. I think it's more the nature. I, I mean, the process of creating process of creating a print publication whether it's a, a parody or not you know right. but the i which may be a separate conversation that probably isn't appropriate for this podcast um but i think that there's something really interesting about the idea that you can which you don't see today which is the idea of one-off things that are parodies of things that exist in media at least not in print maybe you see them in digital but even then i don't think you do well, I, mean, I must say, what what seems to pass for parody now is not parody at all. In, in my in my by my definition, parody in my definition is when you take the style or or voice of of your target and exaggerate it to the point where it becomes ludicrous. Yeah. Um, in the in the case of a newspaper, obviously that means it, that does mean its graphics, its it, it and its style and its you know its quirks, both visual and verbal. Um, and you know that that's that's rather different than satire. Which satire is more like taking the mentality of your target mm-hmm. and exaggerating it to the point where it becomes absurd. But 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 most of what I see as parody, especially musical parodies, are what I would call pastiche. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're, uh, they're they're just like all kinds of things thrown at. Uh, a, a given star or song or whatever it is, which don't quite often don't have anything to do with with the song or the intention of the song or the style of the person who's singing it or you know his or her roots or whatever it might be. Right, right. It's um, it's just it, it's like a whole bunch of things thrown together, which may individually be kind of amusing, but don't make for a parody. They don't make for a sort of statement about Adele or whoever. Right. It is, do you know? think that anyone's doing 
good I mean because I think sketch comedy can be very good parody if it's done well is anyone doing good sketch comedy parodies today or it doesn't have to be sketch but well I don't I don't think so I mean I, I think even I mean funny or die isn't very funny and ought to die but <laughs> but uh it's uh it's got got a lot of access to celebrities which helps right. but I mean their parodies even their parodies are not really parodies mm-hmm. I mean they're, they're uh they're, they Either they're preachy or they're they're sort of goofy in a way which doesn't do any damage. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a parody has to do a certain amount of damage. It has to make you know, the, the Wall Street Journal was furious at the, the, the first parody we put out of them. In fact, the, the guy went on did, did did what we dreamt of, which is that their editor in chief or publisher, I think it's actually their publisher, went on like nightly news television and and said this is an outrage. You know, this should not be allowed to. I can't believe that people are distributing this rubbish and um of course next next morning we were everywhere of course <laughs> that's great but um yeah so i mean I, I i i you couldn't do that now i mean it again it's not unlike spinal tap i suppose which certainly is a parody you have a group of like-minded people who are sufficiently incensed or motivated or excited by the idea of attacking you know something that perhaps once they held dear or perhaps it's that, that somebody who they dislike holds dear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that they're willing to come together and do that as a, as a sort of group effort. Why don't Why don't you think that you could do it now? I think there's two reasons. One is that one one is that comedy. I think comedy seems to me now to have become, with 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 exceptions, is that you can't ever generalize about things like this. But 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 the driving force of, if you will, the kind of foot soldiers of comedy is is me. I mean, it's it's really it's really a me, the, the person who's creating. Yeah, comedy. it's, it's yeah. like it, it's what I what I have to say about myself and my life is what's truly funny. Often it's very very funny. You know, I mean, Louis C.K. obviously is is very funny, but I mean, he basically talks about himself and his and his own life for sure. Uh, and um, well, the way I normally answer this is when I first came to America in 1964 with my partner, we were doing sketch comedy, you know, of the kind that, that you probably don't remember this or even know about the show called Beyond the Fringe, but it was an enormous, enormous, enormously influential British show mm-hmm. that came and played on Broadway, actually. But it was, anyway, we were doing, at that point, a parody of the BBC News. Okay. That's 52 years ago. So it's it's really doing parodies... Doing news parodies on channels that have news seems to me so up its own ass that <laughs> it's just not worth doing anymore. I mean, there's nothing right. new to be said about what 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 craven assholes people on TV news are. It's right. just not possible. How would you look at what SNL does? When well, they, as I say, SNL... When they now, I don't mean that, I mean now. Like the SNL news impressions they do of like Fox News or Fox and Friends or Morning Joe or whatever, like they certainly are imitations at, right. at, at the best maybe right well as i said earlier i think i think this is more television about television mm-hmm. i mean if right. it's it's uh if you're not if 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 you're just constantly referencing television then that then and you're going to end up doing you know i do i do a really good tina fey doing sarah palin <laughs> right? which right. is which is oh wow that's cool right but um what does it mean? I yeah. mean, it's just it's just like reproducing. It's it's a it's a, it's a television is 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 about pictures moving in front of your face. Right. So so to, doing a good pic, 
doing a good parody of that picture. It doesn't seem to me to be a very right. interesting way of so move, so living if, your comedic if we, life. If we step away from comedy for a second, I think I'm going to step away from comedy. Um, you, you have like a, a, another serious side to it, th- think with your book, Father Joe, right? right. Uh, which is skipping way ahead, and I, I know I apologize okay. for that, but, I've, but I'm kind of, I, I have not read it, to be fair. Um, so I totally didn't prepare for the interview at all. You were good Catholic and all. I know. I may have my own my you own Catholic. Read it. You better read it. Then. It's a fine book. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll be happy to read it. I'll just, give you your but... penance later. <laughs> I just I can't do any more self-flagellation. It hurts. <laughs> I don't like bleeding. Oh, you love it. You love it. <laughs> this is where the interview when got the weird. blood comes. Yeah. <laughs> um, for for you, this this book was a big book. By the right, it was right. like it was a big book. Like, sure. And it came out what, like twelve years ago? Is that right? Uh, two thousand four. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I, I think it's always interesting to understand the the, the things that le- that bring us and lead us to who we are. You know, and we talked a lot about comedy, a lot about getting through what was kind of crap in the sixties and 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 more honest in the seventies, and and your disgust with stand up in the eighties. So, how like what for you? What what just made you decide to write the book? And and for those who don't know, uh, I mean, give like a can you can you give a, as brief a synopsis as possible if I don't want to give anything away. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, Father Joe's is is a book about uh, a Benedictine monk that I got to know in very odd circumstances uh, when I was um, fourteen, fifteen years old in um, in a, a little island off the south coast of England called the Isle of Wight where his monastery was and this guy was a contemplative which means he lived at the monastery all the time they didn't have a school or anything anything like that they were behind high and stone walls um and um he was a wonderfully funny person which attracted me to him because most priests aren't uh and um but he was also a very wise man and he was also a saint i mean as i later realized uh and i was so taken by this guy that I actually wanted to become a monk myself for several years and, and acted that way and behaved as I was going to. While you were um, a teen- teenager. What's that? While you were a teenager. Yes, when I was, I was a teenage monk. And um, it uh, didn't happen for reasons, once again, which are in the book, I needn't go into. But the, you know, the, the core story is that this guy remained in my life you know, after I completely deserted the church, and obviously at the point of the lampoon was not just deserting the church, but attacking the church. Sure. You know, I did a piece, one of the first pieces I did for the National Lampoon was about uh, the story of Jessica Christ, which was uh, Christ, that was actually a woman. And, you know, the illustration was her in a very short, very short robe, walking on the water in high heels, very large breasts too, which was blasphemy. For, at that point, blasphemy, well, who cares about that? Point, right? Well, no, we, no one cares about it now. But but then to me, that was like a high mm, I mean, because I it was I had been so the other way. Yeah. But even though I was doing stuff like that, I, I retained this um, retained this relationship with Father Joe until he died in 1998. And um, and it was the, probably it's a long time. Yes, it, it was a 40 year relationship. Wow. And it, it was easily the most important and precious relationship of my life. So I decided I would tell the story of that. And. Was it? Uh, I mean, but one of the one of the, one of the interesting things about Father Joe, as I said, was that he was funny, and that he got funny, even though he was a contemplative monk. He he thought things were in, immensely, you know, he had a great sense of humor. But he also there was one very serious conversation we had at one point when I was very low after Spitting Image, where we were discussing satire, which he didn't really understand quite. But he did he did say one wonderful thing. He said he thought a satirist and a monk in many ways, have similarities because they both start out as idealists and they both 
act on their disappointment with the with the real world, which I thought was very interesting. What? Why? Why do you think that is? And and what is different about the monk culture in your experience? than, say, a priest or someone else. What brings that about? Well, I mean, the, the monastic life as lived by certainly contemplative Benedictines involves turning your back on the world and all its and all its you know promises and rewards and so forth, uh, and living a life of poverty and obedience yeah. uh, and stability, which is, means staying in one place. Um, so it's, it's like as a response to the world it has it's a it's it's if you really want to look at it from a material point of view it's a very savage response to to what your disappointments at the way the world is yeah it's an extreme response right and i think good satirists are extremists do you think that the that the experience you had in wanting to become a monk or or striving to become a monk led in any way to your your ability to be a little bit more biting in your in your, in your satire well, in the sense that, that, that there is you know, that you've actually sort of looked at an extreme choice and gone, I love that, mm-hmm. uh, and then backed up, backed away from that, and gone off into another kind of ex- extreme sort of choice. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think there is there, there is a, a lot of connection. In fact, w- one of the one of the episodes in Father Joe, which is which is which is worth telling here without. Spoiling the book right. is is that uh, this show I mentioned earlier called Beyond the Fringe, which was this extraordinary uh, theatrical review, which was done by two guys from Cambridge and two guys from Oxford, um, uh, and was it, it first came out in 1960, and it really was the first time that all the sort of mouldy old claptrap of the you know the, the the British Empire and the BBC and 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 the Church of England. I mean, everything sort of British, even Shakespeare. You know, not Shakespeare so much as the way actors played Shakespeare was was parodied relentlessly, and just and was just hilarious because it was the first time Brits had ever seen all of this stuff in one nice package. You know, just taking Britishness as they understood it apart. I mean, one of the, one of the most shocking things to me, wonderfully shocking, was a thing they did about World War Two. About you know, because all World War Two is immensely romanticized after afterwards in you know in in british culture mm-hmm. so and this was just like just fantastic <laughs> fantastic and at the time i was at cambridge when i saw that show and i was basically studying or preparing to be, be a monk but as i say in the book i went into the theater a monk and i came out a satirist mm. and i've never quite understood what the connection is but there is some profound connection right. between those two things no i now now i want to read the book See, good. Well, you should read the book. You would have known about that. Yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, I don't do preparation for these interviews, Tony. <laughs> well, you understand? Okay. <laughs> I Some knew that you had a book for interviews. I knew, research. I knew you had a book, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and with that, with that, cheers, sir. Cheers. Uh, it's been lovely. Thank you. Absolutely, great fun. Hello. I'm Stanley Sherman. And I'm his wife, Rita Sherman. We're the people in the car ahead of you in traffic. The white SUV. And we're here to encourage you to subscribe to the Final Edition podcast. We are very interested in things. We appreciate a show that takes time to examine the issues. It makes us more informed voters. Weather 
to go to the right or go to the left or go straight or stop and consider our options. Well, the light is green up ahead, so we better slow down. This will take all my concentration. Be careful, Stan. I know. The Final Edition Podcast. We have one. I'm Gil Barron for the final edition, and now we present an interview with comedy critic Clem the Prospector. Good evening, sir. Now, let me get this straight. You're an old-timey prospector who watches and critiques comedy, correct? Sure am. I'm happy to be here, even if your audience is plum ugly. Well, I don't think there's any cause for that. Sure there is. I believe in the comedy principle of punching down. Don't you mean punching up? Punch up. At the people in power? That's crazy. There are betters. But isn't the purpose of comedy to speak truth to power? You think the people in power don't know the truth? Why, they invented the stuff. Well, okay, why don't you give me an example of what you're talking about? You threw a pie in my face. Why did you do that? To illustrate my point. You are not superior to me socially or economically. It just... It just seems mean to attack regular people who are just going about their day. I... That's me. Always punching down at the poor suckers and chumps who are worse off than me. Okay, well, how did an old-timey prospector come to be a comedy critic anyway? What? I'm not telling you that. Get a better journalist in here, you chattering boob. Please. Okay. Ain't nothing to do when you're prospecting for gold except tell yourself jokes and figure out where every person you know ranks on a scale of worthwhileness. All right, I suppose that makes sense. Also, no one told me the gold rush was over, and I've been paying for gold in the Black Hills of South Dakota since 1892. So it's always nice to meet someone below me to mock, you witless ninny. But I still don't understand why, sir. What does punching down give you? All the gravity and momentum is going down. It's easier. Well, would you ever consider not kicking someone who's already down? No. How will they learn that they're inferior to me unless I ridicule them? You sound like you've never read the objectivist literature of Ayn Rand. Well, it sounds like a sad way to live, sir. Why? I know my exact place in the cosmos and how every other person exists in relation to me. Can you say the same, you probable bedwetter? Well, aren't you familiar with the line from Hey Jude? Don't you know that it's a fool who plays it cool by making his world a little colder? The Beatles? They're way better than me. They're better than all of us. I will not go after my superiors. Well, you're consistent, sir. I'll give you that. Of course you will. I'm better than you. Don't punch up, you milk toast. Now, if you'll excuse me... There's an open mic night happening next door with a lot of real, raw, vulnerable talent, and my services are needed. All right, then. Comedy critic Clem the Prospector, everyone. The final edition will be right back as soon as I finish this sentence right now. In our series on first world problems, the final edition presents Shame of the Family. Reporter Stone Peck has that story. The Great Recession of 2007 halted many plans people had for their families. One such household is the Richardsons of Manhattan's Upper West Side. 
Well, we laid out, I thought, a pretty realistic budget for getting Laura through college, but, you know, now, of course, everything's on hold. How old is Laura now? Almost nine. Oh, then you still have a lot of time. Well, not really. Nine is getting a little old for a cat. Laura is a gray-and-white striped domestic short hair, upon whom David and Mandy Richardson had placed a great deal of hope and expectation. I mean... A cat has a brain the size of a walnut. How do you explain to her that she... She can't go to the good daycare center anymore. Right, the good daycare, and, and we can't afford the Swedish veterinarian who's outside our coverage network. And we can't afford riding lessons now. You put your cat on a horse. Well, I couldn't say no to her. Childless, middle-class pet owners are in a desperate situation. Mavis Hitchens of Bernal Heights in San Francisco can no longer afford simple niceties for her 20 cats. And she says the government and social service agencies are simply ignoring her. There has never been a time ever in history anywhere in the world that has been as hard as it is right now for me. Ten years ago, I could pay to put them all in decent wedding gowns and bridesmaids' outfits, and I could still get the kittens properly baptized. Now look at them all, pitifully walking around in last year's shoes. Would you say that this is worse than the Holocaust? Yes. So what do we tell our pets in this era of diminished expectations? As kittens, they were raised to believe they become whatever they set their minds to. Now, they are cats without futures, lying in the sun, chasing laser pointers, useless. This is Stone Peck for the final edition. No sign of suspect Jimmy the Whale. Tenth hour of stakeout continues. Agent Michael's out. You want the last fry? Yeah. Yours. <sighs> Steakouts. Kind of like a date, aren't they? Actually, no. They're nothing at all like a date. Why, why would you say that? You and me, up here, alone, food. If you want to make out. I, I don't want to make out with you, Agent Thompson. This is not a date. This is the FBI. FBI date needed. Did is a past tense verb. Just, just do your job. You're gonna sit here overlooking this oceanside bungalow and tell me you don't want to get back together? You're gonna sit here feeling the saltwater breezes caressing our skin. I can't help it if Jimmy the Whale has a beach house. You could have gotten anyone in the department, but you chose me. You're the best sharpshooter. And they're playing our song. Look, it's a popular song. So popular that I didn't choose it. Jimmy the Whale did. He's playing it in the bunga... The beach house. Did you get a gangster in on this for me? Baby. Look, I didn't... Project Love Nest, come in. Did you give our this mission Love that nickname? Nest, come in. Headquarters has a major problem. You two back together yet? We are not getting back together. Do you copy? Uh, I guess we should cancel the sky riding. Why would you reveal our position like that? Uh, What? Delivery for Agent Michaels. Shh, go away. Hey, screw you, guy. I climbed to the top of this embankment. Jesus, is that a gun? Police, police! We are the... 
Ah! Look, no more endangering our lives or our jobs. We are not getting back together. Repeat. Never getting back together. Copy? Copy. Good. Just an asexual gun for hire. Fine. Project Loveness, come in. Yeah, this is Project Loveness. No, no, that's Project Single and Loving It. We read you. Go ahead. Uh, the informant mistakenly inverted the numbers on the address of the bungalow. It's 319, not 913. And according to this map... Uh, Let me guess. It's a long walk on the beach. Yes. Also, the power at the bungalow has reportedly gone out, so it will be lit by candlelight. Repeat, candlelight. Can I write our names in the sand? No! Nope, nope, turn it off. Nope, not this song. Shut it down. Shut it down. Thanks for listening to the Final Edition Radio Hour. The voices of the Final Edition are performed by Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hendra, Jeff Hendrick, Dan Vitale, Jessica Park, Jeff Chrysler, Barry Lank, John Marshall, Abby Parker, Rachel Rauch, Steve Rosenfield, James Mount, Rob Miller, Leah Krinsky, Kayla Merrill, Andrew Danish, Leslie Shapira, Anne Tuchel, and Darby Worley. Credit to our writers at the Final Edition Radio Hour. Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hendra, Jeff Hendrick, Jessica Park, Abby Parker, Jeff Chrysler, John Marshall, Barry Lank, Leslie Shapira, Kurt Weitzman, Leah Krinsky, Kate Knowles, Jeremy Rayburn, and Steve Rosenfield. The final edition is produced and directed by Tony Hendra and Jeff Chrysler. West Coast production by Barry Lank. Audio edited and engineered by Greg Russ and Andrew Hammond. The final edition radio hour is the property of the final edition LLC, Copyright 2015.